Well, good morning. Good to see you all today. Thanks for being with us. If you are visiting today, welcome. Happy to, well, we're happy to have everybody. Um, but especially if you're, you're visiting, thanks for joining us uh, in this time of worship. Today is the fifth Sunday in Lent, this season of repentance, season of fasting as we walk with Jesus to the cross and prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for the celebration of his resurrection. We are spending, as you know, by this point, this season focusing on various perspectives on the cross, various perspectives on the cross. We started this process by talking about the glory of God, which is seen paradoxically in the ugliness of the crucifixion. We looked at the idea of blood sacrifice, the, the idea of atonement, which is applied by New Testament authors to the cross. We talked about the shame of the cross, the great need of the cross because of the gravity, the serious nature of human sin. And today we are going to continue this process by turning our attention to what is quite likely the most popular or the most common image or understanding of the cross in the church today, and that is Jesus as our substitute. Jesus as our substitute. Now, the idea of sacrificial, the, even the idea of substitutionary love is in many ways a cultural virtue. Even in, in moments in which we struggle to actually live sacrificially, we like the idea of it. We understand that there is something virtuous, there's something admirable about sacrificial love. We even see it depicted often in film, and when it is, it can be quite moving. Maybe you have even found ways to live that out in your life, to live sacrificially for others, or, or maybe you have felt that desire to take somebody else's pain on yourself for them, even though that is an impossible task as humans. I, I remember the first, vividly remember the first time our oldest daughter, Cora, got sick. And there was just a look of confusion in her eyes and fear. What is happening to my body? And as her father, I felt so helpless in that moment. And then I, I would have done anything to take that sickness and that pain on myself until I, I remembered what it's like to be sick. And then I was like, well, you're on your own, Cora. No, I, Obviously, that is out of my reach as a parent, but in that moment, if I could have just taken her pain on myself, obviously, I would have done that. And there is something like that occurring as Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. Again, as we've stated throughout this series, our goal in thinking about the cross is not to explain the cross with technical precision that is beyond our ability. Brian Zond has said that Christianity, the Christian faith, is not an explanation. It is a, a confession. So we confess that Jesus is Lord as followers of Jesus, but we are unable to explain everything about this faith. And I think that's true of the cross as well. So instead of explaining... We simply want to consider some of the language used to describe the cross. We want to reflect on it deeply and allow that deep reflection to lead to increased devotion. So Jesus as our substitute, that's what we're considering this morning. When, when we think about what is accomplished 
on the cross of Jesus Christ, we encounter what theologians refer to as atonement theories. Atonement theories. So theories of the atonement. You may remember in the second week of this series, Austin talked about the idea of blood sacrifice. The idea of atonement from the Old Testament where God was providing a way, although that way was partial and incomplete, God was providing a way for relationship between God and humans that that had been fractured by sin. God was providing a way for that to be restored. And atonement is a means of fixing the problems, fixing the broken relationships sin had caused. Atonement was a means of making presence possible. And in that second week, Austin showed us that Jesus is the final. Jesus is the once-for-all atonement and completely restores that relationship. So the sacrificial system of the Old Testament... The sacrificial system of the Hebrew people served its purpose, but it wasn't the end of the story. It served its purpose and was a means of making presence once again possible, but Jesus was the atonement for sin, which was perfect and complete. And that language of atonement helps us to begin wrapping our minds around what exactly is taking place in the cross. So these are atonement theories. The the trouble we bump into when we start thinking about atonement theories, as Fleming Rutledge notes in her book, is that this language that is used to describe the atonement is not intended to be an explanation, but rather an analogy that gives us a window into what is occurring on the cross. And if we view the language If we view all of these images too literally, we can pretty easily run into some problems. But we can easily begin to assume, well, we've got this all nailed down. We we completely understand what happens in the cross, and we can completely, confidently, and accurately explain everything that is occurring in the crucifixion. But again, one thing we are doing during the series is we want to acknowledge as we have throughout the series, the different voices, the various language, the images and metaphors used in Scripture to talk about the cross, these are not precise explanations that are set against one another that we have to sort of choose between. No, all of this language is converging in the cross and giving us a complete picture of what is taking place in this mystery. That convergence of ideas helps us grapple with these realities. So we're spending six weeks, really seven, because we will conclude this on Easter Sunday morning. We're spending seven weeks talking about what is happening in the crucifixion of Jesus, and we're just barely scratching the surface. We will consider these realities for the rest of our lives and still not have a complete perfect understanding. Okay, is that enough for the qualifications? Let's get into it. Today we are looking at the idea of substitution. Substitution, the idea that Jesus died for our sins, a tremendous sacrifice, a tremendous 
price to pay. This is some of the language we find. Jesus as our substitute. Now, that language can be a little bit misleading because of some of the cultural ideas that we have attached to the idea of substitution. The, the substitute is sort of a backup plan. If the first plan did not work, and it, it, the, the individual involved is usually also, also second best. They, they are the sub for a reason, right? You can think about athletics. They're not starters for a reason. And I get it because in high school, I came off the bench my fair share. And so my repeated phrase was, put me in, coach. I'm ready. Coincidentally, I'm still using that phrase as an adult when it comes to softball. <laughs> put me in, coach. I'm ready. I also worked as a substitute teacher when I was in grad school to pay the bills. I know many of, some of you are teachers in the public school system. And I'll just tell you that I would not have been on your list of subs to call if you were going to be. I was a substitute for a reason. I didn't study primary and secondary education. I, I couldn't connect with the students like the regular teacher could. I, I mean, I survived, and I'm here to tell about it, but that's <laughs> about it. The substitution of Jesus is, is very different. This was not sort of the... the backup plan. This was the plan of redemption from the beginning and is only possible because Jesus was the perfect sinless representative. He lived the perfectly righteous and just life we never could and as a result is able to take our place on the cross. So it's the idea that we deserve death. This is what we talked about last week. We even deserve wrath because of our sin. Again, because God is eternally opposed to everything that would destroy his creation. God is opposed to everything against his purposes. So something must be done about sin and evil to make it all right. We deserve death, but Jesus takes our place, this is the language we find, suffers the death that we deserved, the death we invited on ourselves. But again, an overly literal view of this substitution language might lead to some problems. It might lead us to assume that this is some exact transaction that takes place cosmically through which maybe God is able to sort of pay Satan off so that Satan will stop tormenting human beings. Or maybe even worse, this is a price that Jesus is paying to God to appease his anger so that he can love us. Maybe you see some problems with some of those understandings. But this perspective, this angle on the cross is in our scriptures, so we need to consider it to understand or begin understanding what is happening in this event. So Jesus died for our sins. But the question is, did Jesus die for our sins as a payment to Satan that was necessary to redeem humanity from the clutches of dark spiritual forces? Or did Jesus die for our sins as the payment to God to appease his anger? I want to submit this morning that the answer might be a little bit more nuanced than either of those options. And I think it's helpful to begin understanding this if we look at it through the lens of God's substitutionary love. 
So let's begin by reading what the Apostle Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 10. He says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, obviously, there's a lot going on in this section in Galatians chapter 3. Paul is talking in great detail about the law, but we also find this theme running beneath the surface of substitutionary love. Paul says, you are cursed if you can't abide by everything in the law, an impossible task to be sure. But he goes on to say, in the cross, Christ steps in, becomes in some sense that curse for us precisely because we had no chance of living up to that standard. So Paul says we are redeemed, both Jew and Gentile, both godly and ungodly. We are redeemed from that curse. The curse of the law is death, and we're unable to change that. We can't progress far enough to change that position We can't achieve some level of moral superiority in order to do away with that situation we face. We can't establish a completely just society. We are incapable. We lack that ability. We are in desperate need of somebody outside of our system of sin to redeem us. And Paul says, Jesus does this for us in the cross. And Paul makes his argument by appealing back to Isaiah. Paul connects at least implicitly what is happening to Jesus on the cross with what we read a couple of weeks ago from Isaiah 52 and 53. Maybe you remember that section. It should be on the screen behind me in a moment. But in Isaiah, Isaiah points ahead to this servant of the Lord And this is the language he uses about the servant of the Lord. He says he was pierced, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He goes on, and with his wounds we find healing. Not because God required this substitution or this payment in order to love us. I want to be very clear about that. Now, Paul says God's love for us is seen in the fact that while we were yet sinners, while we were still pursuing all manner of evil that takes us away from God, in the midst of that, God reveals his love in the death of Jesus. Jesus is not our substitute that enables God to love us. That has it completely backwards. While we were yet sinners, God loves us 
and Jesus died for us. Back to that comparison between Christ and Adam. Actually, in that same chapter from Romans chapter 5, where Paul talks about the fact while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that chapter, he also compares Adam with Christ. Whereas Adam is the representative human who shows what happens when we reject the purposes of God to pursue our own path, Christ steps in as the new Adam. Christ is our new representative who bears the brunt of our suffering and death, the suffering that we desired and continually chose over and against God. The substitutionary, sacrificial death of Jesus. Now, some will argue, well, this idea of Jesus as our substitute who bears the brunt of what we deserve, that that can't be true because it turns God into an abusive father, as it were. So God sends his son Jesus, this innocent man, against his will, mind you, puts him to death, punishes him instead of us for our sins. So the argument goes, well, as Jesus is on the cross and praying my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We begin to get a picture of a vindictive and vengeful, violent God who requires the punishment of Jesus in order to love us. And so for, for, for some, when we start considering this language of substitution, the cross becomes an example of divine child abuse. But that argument completely disregards the reality of the Trinity. That the cross is not what God does to Jesus in order to love us as though the two are not one. As though Jesus and the Father are acting independently of one another. No, the mystery of the Trinity is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons but one being. And I think this recognition at this point in the conversation leads us to a drastically different view. So who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Is it God the Father? Well, we get a little window into this in some of the earliest sermons from the apostles in the book of Acts. In their sermons, they repeatedly say things like this, speaking to a crowd of people. You crucified and killed him. You killed the author of life. You have betrayed and murdered Jesus. Who killed Jesus? The early apostles seem to think, well, well, we did. The, the cross is not what God does to Jesus in order to love us. It is what God endures through Jesus. Jesus is God. The exact imprint of God. The icon of God. It is God, who willingly steps in, taking the penalty, the result of our sin, absorbing that into his own body. It's not done on a whim. This isn't the backup plan. This was a part of God's plan to res rescue creation from the beginning. God, in that Trinitarian relationship, that conversation from the beginning decided to take on himself any wrath or any judgment for us. 
So any sense of dereliction that we find in the cross of Jesus Christ, any sense of abandonment, it is done with the Son's permission. It is done of the Son's volition. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, in fact, one. Jesus is not, I don't think, expressing anger or frustration with the Father. It is God who sacrifices himself in Jesus to expose our sin to expose our shame, and to overcome it. So when Jesus is praying on the cross, another prayer he utters, this time a prayer for his abusers, for his executioners, those who were deriding him. When he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he is not trying to twist the Father's arm. Not at all. He isn't trying to convince God to forgive us. He is revealing the love of the Father, who while enduring the brutality of the cross in Jesus Christ, wants nothing but restoration even for the perpetrators. And if even those who murdered God are recipients of the grace and forgiveness of God, who is outside of the bounds, who is beyond the reach, of that mercy. Jesus has our substitute. The sacrificial, substitutionary love of God. And Paul's argument that's developing throughout the book of Romans, we, we can't get away from the idea that there's some sense of guilt we have as human beings simply because we are human beings. Sin is inescapable. It is unavoidable. We are a part of a fallen race. But that problem of human sin, that sense of guilt we have, whenever it is addressed, we must understand that grace always comes before guilt. When we have a conversation about sin and guilt, we also immediately declare our trust in the one who overcomes sin. As followers of Jesus, any conversation about sin without that declaration is at the very best incomplete. Jesus as our substitute, the sacrificial love of God. So as we consider the substitutionary love of Jesus on the cross, the cross for us becomes a beautiful, becomes a beautiful, a cherished symbol. In light of the cross, God is publicly judging sin, judging evil. All of the terrible realities and consequences that come from sin, as Paul suggests, Jesus stands in as our representative. Karl Barth, in his work, Church Dogmatic, said this, Man's reconciliation with God takes place through God putting himself in man's place and man being put in God's place as a sheer act of grace. It is this inconceivable miracle which is our reconciliation. Karl Barth says elsewhere, the judge is judged in our place. I love that language. Such a beautiful picture of the cross. The one who stands eternally opposed to sin, judged in our place. Our sin takes us further and further from the purposes of God. But in the cross, that distance is eliminated because Jesus our God puts himself in our place and is judged 
for us. All because while we were yet sinners, God loved us and died for us. So what does this substitution language teach us about the cross? And what does it reveal about the character of God? I want to make just a couple of simple suggestions as we begin to wrap this up. Again, if we view this language through the lens of the biblical narrative, if we view it through the lens of the world of the Old Testament and really the world of the ancient Near East at large, we find this idea of redemption already at work culturally and societally at that time. And the process of redemption was a process whereby a lost, a disenfranchised person was restored into the security and the safety of the family at great cost to the one who was redeeming. What an incredible image in, the light, in light of the cross. Sin leads to death. It destroys the possibility of a full life in the present, but the triune God acts on our behalf to provide a solution. And that solution isn't wiping out the human race. It isn't destroying God's good creation. No, the solution is in taking the suffering on himself in Jesus to bring Adam, to bring all of humanity back to the love and purposes of their creator. We are powerless to save ourselves, but God steps in at great cost to provide a way. This is what makes possible, the, what, what John Calvin said, it makes it possible for us to now live with an untroubled expectation of judgment. Something needs to be done because of sin, because God stands eternally opposed to all that would take us away from his purposes. But we live with an untroubled expectation of judgment because Christ has stepped in, the judge judged in our place. This is not a neat and tidy system that explains the cross, but I, I do think it helps us understand it. And when we begin to understand the sacrificial love seen in the cross, it leads to gratitude. It leads to gratitude, knowing that we can't save ourselves. We express our thankfulness to a God who goes to great lengths, suffers greatly in order to restore us. The cross is not about what God does to Jesus in order to love us. This is what God endures because he loves us and desires what is good for us. It's not as though he's about to strike all of humanity until Jesus at the last minute steps in and bears the brunt. The cross isn't what God does to Jesus in order to love us. It's what God in Jesus endures as he demonstrates that love. Kevin, if you want to come up as we begin to wrap this up. We are simply going to respond to what the Apostle Paul has said in Galatians chapter 3 by expressing our gratitude for the great, the sacrificial, the substitutionary love of God. And as we move into this time of response, lifting our voices together to sing of our gratitude, I want to share something that the British theologian Jane Williams said. 
Jane Williams said this, in Lent, again, this is the season we are in, in Lent, we are preparing, preparing our hearts, preparing our minds, we are preparing to meet and to recognize the mercy of God. We are preparing to meet and recognize the mercy of God. What better way to prepare our hearts and our minds to meet and recognize God's mercy than reflecting on the sacrificial love of our God demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ. Would you stand this morning as we move into this time of response? Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your sacrifice, demonstrating to us the love of the Father. We are grateful for your willingness to be judged in our place even though you are the judge. We are humbled. We are filled with gratitude. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on this language today, this image of what is taking place in the cross, we pray that we wouldn't move too quickly past this. But as we reflect on your love in the cross, that it would, in fact, deepen our devotion, that it would deepen our trust and our faithfulness to you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's join our voices together, expressing our gratitude and our trust in the one who saves.